A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is a woman who I consider to be, hands down, Britain's best interviewer, so no pressure. One of our most compelling and respected journalists and broadcasters, she's an author, an award-winning presenter who has rapidly risen through the ranks to become the youngest ever presenter of the BBC's Woman's Hour. One critic recently credited her with single-handedly rebuilding the BBC's reputation as the home of the heavyweight political interview. In fact, they likened her interview technique to being like interviewed by a basket full of cobras. <laughs> Born and educated in Manchester, she started her professional life at Media Week before climbing the ladder at The Telegraph, where she worked as their first editor, digital media editor and eventually their women's editor, before dipping her toes into the world of radio, cutting her teeth at LBC, before moving on to a sought-after spot on BBC's Radio 5 Live, following in the footsteps of heavyweights Victoria Derbyshire and Sheila Fogarty. But she didn't stop there. She's soon publishing her first book, period. It's about bloody time. Picking up a column for the Sunday Times, a regular spot as a Newsnight anchor, her own show on Bloomberg, and of course, the mother of all radio gigs, the main host seats on Women's Hour, where she's just wrapped on air before heading across town to see me. Emma Barnett's in the studio. Hello. What an intro. You don't need to be nervous at all. You got your teeth around all of that, and it was accurate, which we love as journalists. We love as journalists. In fact, you know what? I probably have overcooked this script somewhat and fact-checked it more times than I ever would normally. And I'm pretty fastidious. But we live and die by facts. That's the data in which we trade, Emma. We do. I love a good fact. And I always get worried if it's not quite been looked into enough and I've not looked into it and then I need to remember it and it's a whole thing. So I appreciate it. But through my research... Um, for this show, I think that we work in quite a similar way. You and I, uh, we, we plan our interviews, we almost imagine responses, and then we give ourselves, I, well, I certainly do, A, B and C scenarios of backup facts that I might need to be able to kind of qualify that conversation and move it forward. Yeah. Does that sound like you? Well, that sounds like also how I plan conversations sometimes with yeah. people. They're just not quite sure what's, uh, what's going on. Um, I think I did frighten one of my friends recently when I did mention that, you know, if I think something's getting quite dull I might spice it up with something socially and she said we can all tell when you're doing that Emma <laughs> and we wish you wouldn't I mean sometimes they do but you get uh, bored yeah exactly and then you know my husband will say don't go into host mode you know don't go into professional mode but sometimes you know in a serious point I think people can't tell their own stories very well you know they sort of murder the best bit and you want to 
Help. help. Yes. <laughs> help. Um, it's Control not, is the other uh, word. Uh, yeah, there's another word for that. There is. But, but equally, you know, I rarely... I do tell lots of stories, but I am a big facilitator as well. I do like to help people, um, yeah. you know, get the best out. Yeah. So sometimes when they're kind of, you know, struggling with something, you do you find yourself kind of almost quite rudely hurrying them along? Yes, I think I do. <laughs> and then and there's a terrible story that I tell against myself as anything, but I think it's quite telling that we were on a train once when we were on holiday and I must have only been about eight or nine and we met we just this is a story of my life we bumped into someone who knew us or knew me through a, a teacher it was a very random thing but it's my whole life I always know someone wherever I go and they say hello or I say hello does my husband's head in and um she began a story she'd already told five minutes earlier and I was eight seven or eight and I said yes we've heard that story before and I didn't think it was rude. I now understand how rude that sounded and, and impetuous as a child. But I genuinely meant, no, no, we, we've done that one. Do another one. <laughs> and my mother died. You know, she just looked at me and said, what, what are we going to do with you? I really loathe repetition. And I'm sure I've repeated myself and then people will find an example. But I agree. It's, it's, and it's, it seems very impatient of me. But there we go. That's, I think it's, it's just all part of the DNA. Now, we've been trying to make this happen for quite some time, and you're a woman with a very busy schedule, but we have met in the most modern of ways. We've slidden, well, slidden, slid into each other's DMs, we which did. I kind of like. <laughs> Having watched you on television for years, that was also a really nice moment of, oh, hello. Was it? Because I did yes. the same. I completely fangirled. <laughs> no, I, I genuinely was like, it's Kate Thorne. Hello. <laughs> I felt, you know, I could reach through the screen back Same. to my memories. But life has been incredibly busy for you of late. You are um, taking stuff out of your, your diary and then loading a whole new kind of ton of work in that's very much of your own making, Emma, which seems really <laughs> exciting. Not many people would ditch Newsnight to launch a newsletter, but you have. I mean, I also had done a really good shift there and it was during the Brexit years, changing of prime minister, and then the pandemic. I learned a lot. It's live telly, which you know all about. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd done years and years of live radio, but I hadn't done until that point a weekly slot on a live television programme. Um, and I had also then taken on a Bloomberg programme, which is a, a global interview show. So I, I sort of felt... You, you kind of skirt over that. Let me just explain. The Bloomberg show is you meeting some of possibly the most fascinating and newsworthy characters from across the globe and having a chance to sit down and ask them pretty much anything. It's, it's a really dream format for me. Oh, my God. Because you do get to talk to people for, for a good half an hour, which may not sound long, but in broadcast terms, is it's a lifetime. And, you know, people like, you know, during the pandemic, Dr Fauci, for example. Exactly, yes. You know, like, just, just Dr Fauci. The top American... Uh, epidemiologist. You know, epidemiologist, me medical figure. He's, you know, Fauci fever, also a lot of Fauci hate. You know, yeah, but very divisive figure. Now. Yeah, and I, and I really... It's a really interesting format as well because I think on... Line, we think people have only got very short attention spans anymore, but I do think podcasts have certainly, and, and the whole world of audio, do show people have an appetite for longer and, and those sorts of conversations. And I think, you know, on traditional television in, in other ways, you know, you've got this seven, nine or 12 minute format for the interview. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm really excited that there's something in vision that is also longer. Uh, so yeah, I feel, I feel with Newsnight, I just learned an enormous amount and I loved the team. Um, and then, yes, not long afterwards, I launched a newsletter. Now, the newsletter brings me very nicely to my first question okay. for you because it's, it's called Trying. We need people like you to lead content distribution like this. It's a new way of keeping uh, quality journalism alive. And in an, in an era where everybody is a publisher, I think the qualification of journalism really needs to be understood and it's true value set, you know. Uh, and Well said. It's, it's, it's really important. In this week's trying newsletter, you opened with such eloquence about your quest to better understand what it is that keeps us as human beings um, trying. You said, in our society, we revere the win, not the trying. We only respect the journey of an athlete once they've become champions or the 
singer who wins the talent contest. Recently, though, there has been a move to respect failing or at least to try to acknowledge that it happens. And when I set out to create this newsletter, I was struggling to name it. It is a bit like naming a band, I, I'll give you that. But this project was born during a time of intense personal trying, trying for a second baby trying to stay on track, trying to be a good mother, a wife, a daughter, friend and colleague. And so the name, like all good ones, stuck. I'm interested in the art of it, why people go back into the ring, whatever ring it is, again and again. And I want to know all about the rings that you keep jumping back into. Because for somebody who would never read a book twice because there's too much to read, new stuff, somebody that doesn't like repetition, trying by its very nature is a repeat pattern. Good point. Very good point. I hadn't even thought of it like that. Maybe that's why I don't like the idea of it. In some ways. <laughs> um, I, I think I, I went on to write in that. I learned quite a bit about my own views in the writing of that, which mm. is why it's an enjoyable thing to do, even if you don't want to publish or share, just writing for yourself, which is that I am probably not one of life's repeat triers for some of those reasons. And also, I am someone who finds something I can do and then try and tries to improve that but doesn't keep doing the same bit of it mm. again and again uh, although of course going on air and doing a daily radio program you are trying i suppose to to keep keep every going day is different but every day is different and it is like banging your head against a brick wall doing ivf i'm now on the sixth round and not knowing if the outcome will ever be any different even though the first time i did it it worked after two and a half years of we, of we should point out you have a little so boy. i have a little boy we have a little boy he's four and a half and I think also when you, after a period of trying naturally for a baby and then have IVF and then it works, and for us, I always say our luck came in at that point and it worked first time, you think it will work again. So you have that belief and that does sustain you maybe for one or two rounds. The shock of it not working the first time and it was right at the beginning of lockdown. So I managed, I was extremely lucky and I never not think about the women and men who couldn't finish those first rounds because, because that was the case for so many. they had interrupted assisted fertility medicine because of lockdown and lots of other medical procedures as well but just specifically on that we were we we just in the nick of time were able to put that embryo in and it didn't work and the shock of that you know hit me in the face because for the first time in my life to do with my health certainly i was confident i was falsely confident it turned out and I think the contrast of expectation and reality just was so overwhelming. And I never thought, having read about and interviewed women who had done six, seven, eight, nine, ten plus IVF rounds, I never thought I'd be doing it. So, yes, I've become fascinated by when people do things again and again and again to try to have a different outcome. But you know... The, you know the pot of gold that sits at the end of this experience for you because you only have to look to your son mm -hmm. to see why you're trying. Yes, and I also wrote in that piece, but I, I'll say it now, which is I think, you know, it's very binary, IVF, in terms of the result. You know, you could be... I, I mentioned interviewing Andy Murray recently on that on that Bloomberg series that we talked about. And it's the same, I suppose, for their, for athletes. They win or they lose, yeah. fine. But you can at least get to the semis. You could at least, yeah. perhaps, and then you'll get a medal or you'll get bronze or you'll get some cash, you know? <laughs> Quite a nice check. Uh, with this process, you, um, you can't be a bit pregnant, you know? You can't yeah. have part of what you've gone in for. It's either or. So I think that's very sobering and quite dispiriting to say the least as you go back in each time and you're right you do only have to look i do only have to look upstairs and you know a sleeping baby at night please hopefully he is sleeping child um <laughs> to know why we're doing it yes that is and then obviously i'm very mindful of those people who don't have a child at all who are doing yeah. this uh, and how hard that is it's it's just horrific i'll never forget that but it and it but it's different again doing it with a child, you know, and I also navigated those feelings of will I, because the reason that when the newsletter began, I totally ripped off the band-aid of not talking about it by doing a personal first person piece in the Times, in the Times magazine on the cover. And I did think, should I publish this or should I not? Because will I look greedy 
to those individuals who have never been able to conceive. And I should just be grateful for my lot and not talk about this and perhaps not even pursue it. You know, not, not because I'm worried about what other people think, but just maybe that is what I'm missing here. That's the view I should have. And as an only child as well myself, which I forgot to put in that piece. So there were lots of people who wrote to me saying, only children are great, you know? And I was like, I know. I'm one. I am one. And, <laughs> and people always look at you when you say you're an only child and go, oh, how was that? And I'm like, great, yeah. thanks. I'm fine. It's just the parents who may have a different view, of course, yeah. if they've tried for more or wanted or maybe imagined more. Um, so, so I did think, should I not share this? Should I not do it? But on balance, there were more reasons than not to. And then I realised that's another myth women can feed themselves, that we should just be happy and quiet. And, and I wasn't writing it to complain. I was just writing it to simply state, I've done this now at that point five times, one miscarriage, and it's absolutely shit. And I want to use the privilege of my platform to say I'm doing it now and it's still not working because I think often people only write about it or talk about it like I did before when it's successful when it's successful absolutely and actually the whole premise of trying as a newsletter and I would urge anybody listening who is enjoying this conversation to subscribe and sign up um, is, is the fact that we have to explore the, the area that sits between the start and the end, whatever that end is, and that is the trying, and that is the stuff that makes us as human beings. I think that is the human spirit is, is derived from that. And I think also explore those things, however small they may be, which don't have medals or paychecks yeah. attached to them, like the stuff of life, mm. which I will and, and hope to write a bit more about, not just, not just, but not only the fertility side of things, because we are all trying in different ways mm. quite regularly in our lives, which is why I liked the name. Um, you know, life is a, is a try. Life is an attempt yeah. day to day on so many different fronts. Like we were just talking before we came on air about menopause, you know, and yeah. how you navigate that. And I know you've been thinking. I have not stopped trying that. to navigate the menopause. There you go. And I actually. So what's interesting, actually, the parallels I drew from reading your piece in the Sunday Times about trying in terms of fertility was your um, quest to challenge authority. And you and I are both well-versed to do that. We're trained to do that. Um, and I find even, even though I'm trained as a journalist to ask questions and challenge uh, information, I found myself at the most vulnerable points not being able to do that. I finally got my chutzpah back and marched back into the doctor's surgery. It was like, I disagree with you and I think you're wrong and I think that because of this, because I'd done some level of homework. But I think it was really important for me to try to rediscover that in myself and I took a lot from that. So as much as my struggle has never been around having a baby, I identified with you almost giving me permission to challenge and I thought, I need to do that more. I need to tell women, you know, men's health is far better resourced researched and just there's data to support so much of what men struggle with where there isn't for women i speak with my doctor a lot about around the menopause and we can't answer really key questions because the data doesn't exist because nobody thought it was valuable to research and that's bullshit it is i would clap if i could do that on this podcast but i'm holding the microphone here we go there's a couple of points to that i mean about men actually the bigger issue sometimes is to get men into the surgery and women often are, as you talk about responsibilities, again, not to stereotype, but there are data sets to show that when men live with women... They live longer. They live longer yeah. because women will say, please go back to the doctor or please follow that up. Sometimes we're much better advocates on behalf of others than we are for ourselves. Totally. And then I also think advocacy... I wrote about this in my book. So my book is a, a whole area of untold stories to do with periods, but also the funny stories as well as the sad ones. But I didn't get diagnosed with a condition called endometriosis for 20 years or so, which shocked me because I also thought, I'm good at getting answers. Yeah. But the thing I talked about in the book, or, or, and I've continued to think about, is because we love and, and cherish, but we are quite worried at times about the NHS in this country, we don't think that a place to be an advocate is a medical setting because of course we trust authority or we've been taught to and that's natural yeah. and we have to disrupt that but we also think thanks so much for seeing me yeah. gratitude I'm so happy to be seen yeah. and whatever you say and you know doctors are, are often right to calm you down say that's not what you think you know and all of that but sometimes they're not right so i think we've got to overturn 
so many different things at times to advocate. Yeah. And I think since I've started speaking out more uh, about this and around this, I, my, my DMs are plentiful, let me tell you, with, with women getting in touch who are lost, exasperated, bewildered, overwhelmed. And I can't give medical advice, but what I can say to every woman is, if you don't feel you've been heard, demand a referral. Do it politely or don't, but demand it nonetheless because you're worth that. I think that's great advice, but I also think just navigating the health system and knowing yeah. to ask for a referral is overwhelming at times to people. They might not even know. Especially when you can't remember why you've just walked into the room in the first place. <laughs> you're I, sweating. I can now relate because of some of the hormones I live my yeah. life on part-time. Uh, yeah, I'm looking for... It's been a great... IVF's a great preview to the menopause. Honestly, just run, my friend, run. <laughs> <laughs> but aside from the stuff that we're talking about now, when it comes to the tries in life, your great tries, what I loved... You are the mother of invention. Like, when you joined The Telegraph, you were brought in because you'd, you'd already been working very successfully at Media Week, which was a trade magazine, mm. a newspaper, I suppose, magazine. And, but you were breaking big stories that were seeping into the mainstream, right? So you, you were setting news agendas as opposed to just reporting them. Then you get to The Telegraph and they create this position for you because you're so prolific in this space but then you went i'm just really not happy that women are being served on this newspaper so you, you just kind of marched upstairs and went right let's launch a section it's going to be called this and i'm going to be in and you like you just make shit happen i love that <laughs> that's trying it was trying yeah um it, you made that sound like a very quick process which i really love about the way you've described that it was um it was definitely not that quick and i did a lot of learning in between those bits, mm -hmm. but you are right in your summary, yes. And I went over there from Media Week where I had been trained very well by my first editor to break stories, and those stories were being picked up in the business pages of the national newspapers, yes. And then this role was created, and then I was breaking some stories, uh, some good stories in the space of digital media and media and technology, and then I did that for, I think, three or four years alongside a bit of a start in broadcasting. So that was beginning alongside. But I did see a dissonance between the stuff that was being written for women in the paper, expressly for women, kind mm. of targeted, and then the women we had coming to the website were of a different demograph, uh, demographic and also perhaps a political view or, or just a variety. It's different. And different I customers. didn't really feel like we were serving them, <laughs> yeah. no. And then the the irony is, of course, people will have their views of The Telegraph um, and, what, and they'll also sometimes have views and they haven't read it as well, but then they also will have their views and definitely have read it. But the thing that was interesting for me, I always do this before I start a job or try and think about creating a job, because I do like creating jobs, as you've spotted, is, or, or certainly talking to people about them, is I will go into back into history because we're never unique. And I went back and looked at the first women's pages of the Telegraph in 1890, and they were an absolute gold trove, you know, just a treasure chest of, of course, of their time, and there were housekeeper notes and things like that, but there were also <laughs> suffragettes, and there were women trying to fight, you know, early, early iterations of that movement and there were women trying to get into work and have paid work and you know the, the majority of volunteers in this country are still women now I know women live longer and all of that but the volunteering was a big part of the women's page and and it wasn't just cookery and housewifery although I say just those things then without labor saving devices were huge jobs yes. in and of themselves. And they still are with labour-saving devices, even with labour-saving devices. But the mangle was a big part of people's lives. Women's the mangle life, was. Lives. And there was no hoover. <laughs> no, there was not. No so washing machine, no I, tumble dryer. I found it ironic that the women's pages, and I'm happy to be corrected by a much more accurate archivist than me, but I went in the archive, I worked with the archivist at the Telegraph, and I, it had been quite a political informative and quite entertaining space and it only really morphed and kind of lost it like its actual identity like that ironically when thatcher came and that's when it became it's a fashion page it's nice and there's nothing wrong with fashion pages no, but, but they are separate to that that's about how you look not about how you think exactly so it was very ironic to me although you could argue maybe from the telegraph's point of view at that point the women's page work was done a woman was in power and it was a conservative woman and for the Telegraph readers that was a good thing. 
many women viewed her as quite the sister that we would have liked her to be. Again, a whole other debate, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's kind of took me to the 80s and then yeah. I was like, well, what happened? Yeah, but it's still quite remarkable, isn't it, how... Um, you're right how how times have changed thank god but when i know that when you looked back when you did exactly the same exercise when you took on the job at woman's hour yes and you went back to the very beginning of where it began and what its purpose was and the fact was initially it was brought to to air by a man the first presenter of woman's hour was a man what the hell i know i called do called alan <laughs> i do wait alan i have to look at this Sometimes quite regularly to believe it, but yes, it's true. And I interviewed recently one of the original producers for the 75th anniversary of the show, and she was a, is a wonderful woman, and she couldn't quite believe it, I think, at the time either. You know, they used to have a, a titter about it in the office. <laughs> he didn't last that long, but it was thought, an urban myth of broadcasting, I'm sure you will have heard, that women wouldn't like another woman's voice on the airwaves because they would always want to marry the person that they listen to. So it'd be highly preferable oh to have God. your kind of boyfriend syndrome or your husband syndrome. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, we know we don't know where that's from. I thought it was because we because we were considered too shrill. There's and that also, well. we were second-class citizens. We weren't. We were there to be seen and not heard, and that that our opinions didn't count because we weren't the working man. Women could be correspondents on Women's Hour while there was a male anchor. <laughs> so, yes, all of that is also true because there's a lot in this book I read, which was a brilliant history of Women's Hour. But, but this, also this is in touching distance of like, we, we know 75-year-olds, right? This is in our living memory. We have to remember this sometimes. We've come a long way, girls. Very but, short space. But, short but your space. point about shrill was very right because they used to say, well, we'll need to get a different microphone for the ladies. <laughs> And could you lower it? And could you speak a bit slower? You know, all these different things to modulate us and moderate us. I've got quite a low voice, my naturally, though. And I remember when I did start, and, you know, I really would never now, but I did look on, you know, forums and seeing, you know, responses. And I remember this person wrote, you know, God, her voice is so dull and low. <laughs> and she, I feel like she's just speaking too slow to sound authoritative. And I thought, oh, God. And I thought, well, it's all I've got. It's just my voice. I this don't know what to me. do. You do come up to an age, don't you, where you just have to go, I'm going to have to stop apologising for myself. It's just, it's just, this is it. I'm sorry. <laughs> you can always switch off. You just said sorry. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> so you're right. See? So bloody British. <laughs> uh, now, talking of important conversations, are you ready for my next question? I am. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One of the many things that we seem to agree on is our mutual love for the lost art of a phone call. Mm. I've spoken very passionately about this on this podcast in the past. In a world where we are, I mean, just battling constant text messages or people arranging to make a phone call to you, I, I cannot understand why we have to schedule a call. Just, just call me, and if I can't pick up, I'll call you back. That's just, because we're of a certain age we as are well of a now. Certain age. 
I know there's an age difference, but we're still of an age of an where age. there was an, a, la a landline allegiance. Yeah. But also, I think, you know, we are lovers of important, prolonged, direct, difficult conversations. We can't, you know, yeah. it is kind of, you know, the nectar that we sniff out. So I wanted to know, both on and off air, personally and professionally, what have been the most significant conversations you've been a party to to kind of underpin the importance of the fact that it's really good to talk? It is. I still have a landline, Kate. So do I. <laughs> I know my number. I don't know my number. But I don't I say it when I answer recently. the phone anymore. Do you know <laughs> My dad's only just stopped saying on landline in don't the last say 10 it on years. Here. I'm not going <laughs> to. I love my landline. It's so much more reliable than <laughs> any other form of kit that I use. And, um, yeah, certain friends still have it and they see it flash up on their mobile and they're like, oh, my gosh, it's on the landline again. Like, <laughs> it's gonna be and then when I lose them, I'm like, it's not me. <laughs> I'm solid. I'm solid right now. I'm hardwired. And I still I'm hardwired. And I still feel really sorry for those. You know, those stories, they're perennials. And I used to write them when I was a technology correspondent about when they're going to cut off landlines and they're going to... And we haven't even got broadband sorted no. in parts of the country no. for your farmers and for anyone else. Yeah. And, and we're in all sorts of mess about communications. But no, I, I, I do feel some of my friendships have actually suffered because everything mm -hmm. has to be done on WhatsApp. And obviously then when we see each other, it's great. Yes, but, but I do have but, some friends who won't take a phone call. Yeah. And, and it saddens me because, I mean, I have friends that do as well, and we will, you know, I mean, there's nothing more satisfying than that nine o'clock till 10 o'clock, glass of wine in hand, yes. big chat, catch up with a mate. And like, you go to bed, I go to bed, feeling like I've been to the gym of life. It's I've such had a nice description. A brilliant workout with my friends. Yeah. We've and we've we've done the small, the trivial, and then the really significant and really important. We've laughed, we've cried. It's just life affirming, I think. I think people don't have time. Or the sure. perception of their life is they don't have time. I also think one friend, she agreed this weekend, I negotiated it. We've got a middle ground now of a voice note. I like a voice note. I like a voice note. I'm good on those. Some people don't like those either. I don't like big long texts and I hate long emails. It's very hard work. But at least a voice note, you can walk, yeah. you can do it, and it's more personal. There's on tone. The move, there's tone. See, because so much get, gets lost yeah. in a text. So yeah, Intonation. I mean, and we know that because we are fundamentally print journalists so I know the black and white of print and I always want to color it with feeling and emotion or a suck or a sigh or you yeah, know yeah. whatever it is that brings a sentence to life I mean my mum and her generation I would say especially but I've seen this firsthand she's not particularly digital but she has a bit of a phone rotor I mean it's not written down but she's got her women who yeah, she calls and, you know, your nine till ten example. My mum probably can do two a night. She won't do a full hour with one. Double sitting. And <laughs> two covers. <laughs> I'll have, I can definitely say, like, who have we spoken to? And yeah. there will be good detail on that. And, you know, men, not just of their generation, we know younger men don't have friends in the same way because no. they sometimes don't keep up with them. They don't remember. I'm not good at birthdays, but they don't send cards or they don't. And I know all that stuff is not what you need to do anymore, but it means something. But it's investment, isn't it? It's investment yeah. in people. But I just think those conversations are so important. What are the ones, what are the conversations that you almost treasure that would be put in your memory bank and, and kept to revisit in a difficult day? I mean, personally, the ones that come to mind are, I, I, if you like, on my phone card, my rotor, unofficial rotor, I have lost recently two older women. So I have lost my godmother, who who died last year, and she, Auntie Jean, and she was a huge force in my life. She was my grandmother's best friend, but my grandmother died when I was just before I was six. So she was already my godmother, but she stepped up into that role, never claiming to be my grandmother, but no. she was my grandma's best friend. So it felt like a grandma figure my whole life. Oh. And Auntie Jean and I would talk at least once a week. Did you? And she lived in Manchester, and, and obviously for the last near 20 years I've lived in London. And when I would go back to Manchester, she'd have a crafty fag on the go, a wine at six, or a champagne cocktail. <laughs> and she was a hairdresser most of her life. So she was always on her feet, very happy to be on her feet, wandering around, having a chat. Wasn't meant to smoke anymore, but always had a cheeky one. And she was a life force in my life. And the phone calls were not always long, 
but they were really important. So they, I remember when I was about 13 and, you know, something terribly dramatic had happened, probably with a boy, and it wasn't that dramatic now, but at the time. And she just sent me a card with a boat on the front of it and she said, you know, I'm the island in this picture and you've got the oars and come come talk to me anytime you want. Oh. And I was like, wow, this is a deep message. It's so meaningful. She's treating me like an adult. I feel understood. But I did. <laughs> And you know, the, when I, I really like that, when I passed, it was beautiful. And when I passed my driving test, she was the first person I drove to see because <gasps> I could go on my own for the first yeah. time. So she was very and will always remain very important. Those phone calls were very important touchstone in my life. I can't delete her number off my landline or my favourites list on my mobile. And someone I would only speak to probably about four or five times a year. Again, another older woman was my drama teacher from school who I'd stayed in touch with Mrs K I could never call her her first name and she died a couple of years ago and yeah I, I have a gap now in my phone I mean I have other phone calls that come to mind as well but I'll give you my landline but you have a gap <laughs> of, of who's on my list now you know uh, of important especially important women yeah, I, I just, I mean, I live for those conversations and I love them. Um, I really do. But I think what about the conversations that sit outside of, of um, matters of friendship? What about the, the significant calls you've made or received um, that have got you to where you are today, work-wise or yeah, otherwise? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, there's definitely those. I do remember the first time my now husband, but then boyfriend and I spoke on the phone uh, he was quite struck by how northern he thought I sounded as a southerner. That was a very nice call. He said, God, you sound a bit different. I said, that, did, you, did you meet at uni? We met at university. And I, I rang him, you know, being direct. Even then, texts were more the favour. Yeah. And I rang and said, where are we meeting? I can, I can even hear myself going, where are we meeting in London? And I think my voice definitely has softened. I never had the broadest. I was never a Gallagher brother, but I definitely <laughs> had more of a twang. And it has softened. Not by design, it's just... It's what's happened. And uh, he, he did make that comment. But I remember the phone call being quite important because it led to the first proper date and the first proper meeting. And, you know, and who called who? I had asked him out, but then he had made the date happen on the text and I called him to check it was on and where we were going. Brilliant. <laughs> you got the ball rolling. He said, he said I was very direct and I was the first woman who'd asked him out. So I, I can live with that. Fantastic. And who asked who to marry who? He did propose, although I, he was very scared I was about to once because I'd taken him to a nice hotel and he just said, whatever you're about to do, don't do it. I said, I was just <laughs> going to order some food, but OK. Uh, so he did propose. He did propose. Painful. Uh, in terms of work, I suppose, phone calls. I mean, they've been... When I started on radio, and you mentioned it was at LBC, to qualify to be a live radio broadcaster, I'm sure a bit like telly, you have to do it. Got to. There's Got no to other, somewhere. You can't not do it so I was put on the 1am till 5am slot uh, on LBC so LBC is is predominantly its currency is calls right it yes. is phone calls so I've had a lot of phone calls but you have probably um, some quite extreme characters at that hour you do you also don't in other ways which I, I had thought it would just be that but because a lot of people in this country that we don't really think about work Shift. shifts People are winding down, and I remember an amazing call from a female bouncer. So there'd been a slut march, a slut walk in London, so-called slut walk in What's London that weekend. Walk? Exactly. This was a brief moment, a bit like Reclaim the Streets, uh -huh. those sorts of marches, but it was kind of weird. It was, it had a really good purpose, but the, one of the sort of headlines of this particular women's group, I can't remember the... It, the machinations of the group but one of the things was we're going to reclaim the word slut so that we can not be shamed and all of that it's that kind of territory right and we just debated the word slut a bit on the radio and how it's used and how women you know were perceived to behave at night in london like this was kind of part of it like why should women be treated after dark in any different way especially if they're yeah. dressed differently so it was all that yeah. terrain and all that made a lot of sense some people just didn't like the word slut generally we were finding well, but but putting that aside, the attention right we had the job chat. and a female bouncer called in and she'd been on shift all night it was 4 a.m or so she was on the phone to me for an hour nearly. <laughs> she was golden because she was also saying, although she respected that and whatever, she was talking about those difficult tensions where women have brought themselves into a difficult situation and she's had to sort it out as a bouncer. So right. she's not like there to call them a slut. No. But she's talking about when a woman's so drunk 
and a guy's on top of her and she can't get him off or something like that. Yeah. So not blaming the woman in the sense of that should have happened. No, but outlining what is evidently a very difficult situation. Yeah, and she's talking about personal responsibility yeah. and being a female bouncer is a very rare thing still, mm. still to this day. You know, I spoke to her like probably 15 years ago and I've still remembered that call. Wow. So I thought that, I like it where people come to you and they are the shade of grey. It's not black, it's not white, it is the reality of a frontline job or a frontline experience that is different. And also on LBC, you do get, you're right, different sorts of difficulties at those hours, but also at any time of the day, there was a man who rang, who'd gone outside his house because he was feeling so depressed to talk to me on a bench. You know, he wasn't going to do anything he said bad, but he just needed to talk. And then you're live on air with someone. I'm not a Samaritan, I'd always pass on the right numbers and all of that, but he did just want to talk. And then that's a very memorable, exchange also you have very memorable exchanges with people who want to share their politics of course you do <laughs> but i still have those in the street so that's great I bet, well yeah but i mean but even but you're having those exchanges with those that are in government and yes i mean one of my favorite is that is the moment you reduced jeremy corbyn to i mean just uh, just a kind of speechless wreck really he just couldn't come back with the facts that you were very politely asking him to establish not, yeah. not tricky well, I, I mean, I've interviewed you know, a lot of the leaders and a lot of the politicians over the years. I, I think the, the one you're referring to is when I've interviewed him twice, actually, on Woman's Hour. It was the second time, and it was a few days off the general election. Yes. His first run at being prime minister, and he, he'd come on to announce a childcare package. Right. Uh, and yes, and, you know, who, what, why, where and when are the five W's of journalism, and, and how much is it, in that particular instance, how much is it going to cost? And, you know, he didn't know, and it, it did... It did become a big a big moment in that interview for sure. Um, and yes, I think if you can stay polite and you are mm -hmm. focused on the answer, and I often just think about the listener and what they want to know. And if a woman's listening to that or a man, and there's a promise of childcare, which is one of our biggest issues in oh society, oh my god, it's huge! You need to know how much it's going to cost. That's that's it. Absolutely. So it, it's not. Um, but equally, not your job is to know the facts, and his job is to know the facts. You just that it's a professional exchange. Yeah, yeah. And he's on the ropes because he's he's not up to speed. You know. Well, I think I think you know also what was there is quite a lot of reaction in particular interviews like that. You know, I remember I've also had them after particular exchanges on the conservative benches. You know, around facts around Brexit or facts around how much things are going to cost again. Cost is very important to people and how things will be funded. And I think. On that particular incident, you know, it was very well reported how much abuse came in um, towards towards me. And he even, later that day, Jeremy Corbyn, addressed it in a press conference. Oh, did he? And he asked people not to do it because I was just doing my job. You were? Um, so when politicians, and I've had that with other politicians as well, where they've said, can you not attack the individual? And I've seen them do it with other journalists as well, say, don't do this to the journalists. So... It's, it's a fiery zone, for sure. It is, but it needs to be in so many respects because questions need to be asked by intelligent people who are well-informed. And if the recipient and the, uh, the receiving end of that question isn't armed with the facts of the matter, well, then, tough. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, it's, but it's, it's obviously people are... Lots of people aren't, but people are very party political. Yeah, well, it's tribal, isn't it? It is tribal. And, you know, I'm sure it's the same for sometimes for sports journalists all those different things where you have. But I think politics is still one of the last arenas where there is spin, of course there's spin, people have all sorts of PR people around them and it's very frustrating that I think listeners and viewers are extremely wise when answers are not forthcoming and they're dressed up in different ways. I'm talking about generally now. Yeah. But I still think it's one of the arenas where you can, unlike celebrity, unlike sports journalism and sports stars, where if you ask the wrong question, you may never get access to them again. Politicians have to be available. Are they always available? No. No. That is very difficult. Yeah. But they have to, to an extent, still come to answer. Yeah. Because of the very nature of the position. They're servants to the people. Yes, they're public servants. So yeah. I think it's still a healthy area for journalism, for sure. Do journalists always get it right? No. Of course not. Yeah. No. So I mean, I'm happy to say that. Yeah, but of I course. Think, but I think, you know... I, I wear the responsibility because of my LBC days, actually. I'm always thinking about the listener. 
They're really important, those hours that you, you accruing air miles is, is the way I always yes, refer to it. very true. It, you have to go and learn somewhere. You have to be allowed to make mistakes because otherwise no lessons are learned. Success is so easy in so many ways. It's the trying to go back. It is. To where we air began miles with. is the right way. Of yeah, it is. It's air miles. And you can't do Newsnight without doing those air miles. You can't do woman's hour without accruing those air miles. Well, Five Live was also, I did five oh, years there, and, and that was a three-hour morning show. And, you know, I, I, was, I was in a tent on College Green, that patch of little scrubby grass outside Westminster. It wasn't meant to be a political show, and it sort of ended up being one because of the extraordinary time. As in, it was always going to have politics in it. Prime Minister's Questions was part of the show, all yep. that sort of stuff because of the time of day. But it was a very full-on five years in politics, so I was just in a tent most of the time, <laughs> all going around the country, um, you know, running around trying to find, I don't know, leaders of UKIP in Skegness was one nice memory. You know, various things were going on, which I couldn't have predicted, but you say no two days are the same, and that genuinely couldn't yeah. have been truer at that point. It also seems to me, as an observer of your career, that you've never gone out looking to um, curry favour with your peers, I and mean, certainly not with the people that you interview, for sure. But you find yourself, I mean, for example, being lauded by Jeremy Paxman as, Paxman as his favourite interviewer. I think that's quite the compliment coming from... <laughs> Well, Quite the Rottweiler. <laughs> well, he, he, I've interviewed Mr. Paxman twice now. Uh, once on stage at a literary festival and once on my Five Live show because he started a podcast. It's all the rage, Kate. All the been doing Everyone's got one. They're like opinions. You've been doing it since uh, 2019 or so, I believe, if you didn't have one before then. Yeah, no, no, no. And, um, yeah, no, he, he did say that, which was very nice and very appreciative. I think... People always want to compare you to somebody, so that then did lead to those sorts of comparisons. But I feel quite happy about the fact I've always been how I am. Yeah. I think it, it's not... I'm not modelling myself on here. You really don't. But also, you worked in quite um, esteemed female company, for example, at Newsnight, Emily Maitlis, Kirsty Walk. I never felt like you were trying to emulate. You always felt very much like your own voice. And I yeah, love I, that. I applaud that. Oh, thank you. No, I mean, I... I, I I think if you are thinking, can I do it like this, you're going a bit wrong, go wrong. Uh, quite a lot wrong, actually. You will come unstuck. And I also think the years of radio, exactly the air miles, helps you find your voice, which is just... And I also think, you know, for people who don't really know my work, they don't need to, but if they sort of just typify me as the hard interviewer, they actually don't really know what I do no. or how I've done it or the range of work. I'm sure you get annoyed with people only knowing you for one thing or... When my interviews, the clips of them, the bits of them that always go viral or, or have gone viral, I should say, those things only escalate in response to the person potentially not answering. It's never the design. So you always are onto a losing ticket if you go into an interview and think, I'm going to do this. Yeah, no, you can't. You have to go in curious and you have to try and go in humble. Of course, there'll be times where you know somebody's actually having to come on because something's gone wrong. That's completely different. Yes, but you can't be agenda-driven, I don't think. Y yeah, you have to sort of see where you go. The most yeah. important thing I learned training on radio before doing telly as well was you just have to listen. Mm. So your entire plan, like you said, A, B, C, whichever way it's going to go, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> right? You just Then that's the end of that part. That's, that that interview is just not happening because now we're doing this. So you can't always do any planning at all. But if you know, if you feel good about the research, at least you can go where it happens, where it goes. Exactly. Well, listen, that takes me very nicely to my final question to you, which is all about a conversation that you had really tried, uh, very hard to land and was very much planned. You landed, I think, probably the scoop of the year this year with the Kate Bush interview. She never gives interviews. Uh, she she never appears in public. I've never actually heard her speak until she came on air with you. And not only did she come on air with you, she also made a rarer than hen's teeth public statement where she sort of just, it was like a love letter to you, Emma. She said, this is Kate Bush. I'm a great admirer of Emma Barnett. I really enjoyed Emma's uncompromising stance on Newsnight, and I love to hear her challenging and championing so many different issues on Women's Hour now. It was the perfect place for me to express my gratitude for the extraordinary attention the song is receiving. Talking about running up the hill, 
making its way back to the top of the charts 37 years after it was first released. Now, that has to be a pinch me mic drop moment, right? <laughs> that is, I actually posted that on your Instagram page. I was like, Emma, your work here is done. You can die happy. <laughs> because Kate frickin' Bush said that about you. She uh, knows your name. The, state, the statement was really unexpected and very, very beautiful because Kate you will know because you've looked through some of my work that not everybody says that sort of thing after they've, no. they've uh, had an exchange or, or they don't say anything or they say something which by the way I don't think often can bear a relation to what actually happened but as the interviewer I never explain or talk about it the work's the work that's kind of a policy for me yes I don't do a running, running commentary of, of the interview it's there all the conversation with Kate she did do that statement sort of a few days later and I think we bumped into each other just we afterwards did. Uh, at a festival and um, it was a really lovely thing that she wrote and I was I think when you are somebody who doesn't talk very much trust is really important and she it, you know doesn't speak publicly a lot so to hear her I mean I was I, when I heard her voice it, it I think you can hear it in my voice I sort of go hello because it, it's Kate Bush actual Kate Bush um, <laughs> So it's it's very, very... And the radio is such a special place for one-to-one -one or podcasts, which is why podcasts are doing well, because they are the extension of radio. It's, it's, it's really special. And I think those pinch-me moments often remind us of why we do this. But I would love to revisit with you some of those pinch-me moments that you've accrued along the way in a really quite fabulous career. No, well, I think, you know, especially with Kate, you, you always hope somebody could feel they could talk to you and, and that definitely was one. How did you get the interview by the way? Well, I mean you speak to their their people and they see if it works for them and, and they have a think about it but I think she doesn't really have that she is just going to be somebody who thinks about it and she was writing a little bit on her website about uh, running up that hill going to the top of the charts and stranger things and I think she is such a humble woman I don't wish to speak for her but she obviously wanted to say hello to the new fans mm. you know and in our interview she explained the song because obviously we can just learn the rhythms and the tempos of a song but to hear from the person who created the song if you've only i mean there is a whole generation just discovering kate bush for the very first Dead. time and they only think she's got one song yeah they do and they've, they've, got, they've got such a treat ahead yeah. of them except because i heard it coming down i literally heard it coming out of my my son's bedroom my son's 14 and i literally opened the door and i was like is that an advert? <laughs> no, it's on Stranger Things. He went, do you know about Kate Bush? I was like, do I know about Kate Bush? Sit down, son. And but those conversations are happening all the way around the world. Of course now, they which are. Which is kind of, I mean, she had never been in the top 10 in America, I don't believe, until this, this time, time around. around. Back to those key seminal pinch me moments. What are the ones that you think, wow, they're the ones, they're the moments that got me there, or they're the moments that affirmed why I do this? Well, I think, I mean, there was, Another big exclusive interview that, that happened very recently and, and I am still thinking about, which was I've done the, the, the first interview, the only interview that uh, Nazanin Zaghari yes. uh, gave since, since being released from her horrific ordeal, six years detained, essentially a, a hostage in jail in Iran. Uh, the British-Iranian aid worker who'd just gone to see her parents in Tehran mm -hmm. with her little girl Gabriella when she was uh, arrested and put in jail. And, and only recently released earlier this year. And you know, it's, it's obviously a much bigger pinch me moment for her that she's now home and her family and they're still trying to get used to that. I interviewed Richard only a couple of weeks ago for a GQ Heroes event because he was given that as a campaigner beyond all Quite campaigners. Right. Um, but it was, for me, I've, the, the phrase pinch me came to mind because I had interviewed Richard so many times over the last five and a half, near six years, and never met Nazanin. You know, in fact, I've spoken met, so much of her, yeah. And, and never seen her. And so to meet her in the flesh, to see her, mm, was very emotional and very important. And even before we did the interview, and with Richard and, and the campaign, so many people, even if you didn't know the details of the story, and so many people still don't, you know, they don't know about the £450 million tank debt this country had to Iran. The Foreign Office have never linked the repayment, which they just did earlier this year, to, to her the release. release of her and Anusha Ashore, the other gentleman she came home with, and they've still left one British-American-Iranian national behind in jail, which Nazanin often, often talks about. You know, even if you didn't know those details, I think it was one of those moments 
That most you say people, details, they are huge. They're huge. Details, they're significant. They're huge, yeah. Sorry, I just Parts said that. The, sorry, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a detail, it's massive. It's the reason she was there. incarcerated. Yeah. And she talked, and Boris Johnson confirmed that to her. And she quite rightly pulled him on that, didn't she? She talked about that. And, you know, she also has talked about, in that interview that we, we conducted, being forced to sign a false confession mm. as she boarded the plane to come home. And those details really matter. And they're really important. Because they're wrong. To know. Yeah. And, of course, the Foreign Office have a full response to that. And, and I think that will develop that particular part of the story. Yeah, I don't think that story's gone away, that, no. that part of the story. But I think what I was going to say was as well is that with my job, what's really odd about it, because I live broadcast every day, you break news on the day. And I broke... I didn't break the story, but I shared the breaking news of Nazanin's release live on Woman's Hour. It's around half ten in the morning that day. And I thought to myself, I'm saying something that I would remember hearing. Like, you will remember, maybe not where you were when you heard Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe was free. And sometimes a generation has those moments mm -hmm. of when someone's been detained or they followed their story mm -hmm. and then they're free. Hopefully it's a good moment. It's a good news. They're still alive. They've yeah. made it. But I was like, I had a bit of an out-of-body kind of pinch-me experience where I was like, I'm also processing this yeah. right now because I have really followed this story. And when I, you know, launched... Woman's Hour, when I began my show there, my tenure there, which was in January of last year, I had Richard on the very first show. And apart from that being striking, perhaps, to some of the listeners, because it's a man on Woman's Hour with Jeremy Hunt, who's the former foreign secretary who had really worked with the family, it was because we couldn't have Nazanin. Yeah. We couldn't have the woman. But it was a story about a woman. <laughs> it's still it's a story a, a that man's belongs on Woman's Hour. His, the love of his life. And the mother of his child. And he hadn't seen his child for, like, three years. Yeah. Uh, I mean, she was back with him by that point. So it was very... In there was a, a huge intention from me there and from the Women's Hour team mm. to foreground Nazanin. And then to have her in front of me, you know, in fact, as it turned out, yeah, about a year or so later, or a year and two months later, three months later, was a breathtaking moment. Mm. For for the right reason, I would be I would be a very strange person if I didn't find that very moving so yeah and, absolutely and, and an important piece of work to get right yeah yeah and that's why this job is important isn't it because you can be a part of those truly significant conversations where you challenge where you say here's the detail that you guys are not being fed by some of the mainstream media this is the stuff that's really important the stuff that we all need to stand up and challenge or, or making links for people you know yeah. telling Essentially, it's quite high-level storytelling, but it, it makes seem very light touch. So, you know, we are told sometimes by people, we mentioned it earlier, that maybe people don't have the bandwidth, they don't have the attention span for this detail or this detail. So sometimes I, I think people are frustrated. Why haven't you mentioned this? Oh, it's because you're covering it up, or the BBC's covering it up, or the media's covering it up. And actually, it might just be either it was missed out the story or it was paragraph eight and you didn't get to it, or we should have put it higher up, you're right, you know, whatever the information is. But actually sometimes you prioritise the human part of it and you might not prioritise the political. When you're live as well, I mean, I know from writing a story, you can start to move information around, you can say that needs to go up higher, that needs yeah. to be, you know, the second paragraph. When you're live, you are... You're live, you know, yeah. you just, you can't, you don't have the luxury of that edit. No, but I also think that's why script, so my background in print journalism, not to get too geeky about it, but script writing, the, just the intro and everything else is quite off the cuff or, or talking like we are, but the actual script to explain a story properly and to do it concisely so you don't lose people, people's interest is really hard work mm. and it's and really important work. It's like songwriting. Right, yeah. You need a bridge, a chorus and a hook. It's just always got to be engaging, but it's also got to be factual. It can't be too long. Exactly. And it's got to make you want to hear more because there's questions that fall out of it. Yeah, and also that person, for instance, in Nazanin's case, should be the one to tell mm. more of the story than you if you've actually got the subject, the protagonist, with you. So it's a there's so much thought into it to try and inform people. Yeah. Emma, thank you for coming in Thank and you. talking to me face to face. I'm so thrilled to have finally <laughs> had an opportunity to have a conversation with you because you're one of my favourite people to listen to. Oh, uh, so to talk to you has been absolutely my pleasure. Well, 
I feel the same, especially because we're going to have a Spice Girl All Saints mashed yes, up in your garden, are. please. And you're going to phone me on my landline to sort it out. Ah, <laughs> yes. That's what's going to happen. I'm your new nine o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you used to be a lot more, so, you know, I could just take that back in. <laughs> private, private time. It's great. Um, and don't forget, you can listen to Emma every every day, well, Monday to Thursday from 10 a.m. on Woman's Hour. But also, uh, do go out and grab a copy of her book, period, about bloody time, especially if you are struggling with your own. And we're not talking about periods of time. We are talking about the ones that occur in your pants. They're, it's available from all good bookshops, especially the independent ones. We must encourage that. And finally, her weekly newsletter. Just sign up, try it for free before, try it before you buy. I promise you, every time it pings into your inbox, you'll have a little smile. And if you want to hear more great chat with some incredible radio presenters and journalistic heavyweights, look no further than our back catalogue. Simon Mayer's there, David Lammy MP, uh, Dave Berry, Gabby Roslin, Jess Phillips MP, the Reverend Kate Bodley, Sheila Fogarty, and of course, your fellow co-host on Women's Hour, Anita Rani, plus many more. Uh, my thanks to you as always for lending us your ears to Ben Robbins and the Yahoo Studios team who produced the show with me. Editing is by Andy Agson and our music comes courtesy of Andy Bell. Don't forget, his solo material and work with Oasis and Ride is available wherever you get your music. I'll see you next Friday. Until then, thank you for your company. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.